Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History. I'm your host, Mike Voyles, the creator of Mike's Amazing World of Comics, a website dedicated to providing information on comic books of all kinds, especially the oldies but goodies. This podcast serves as a tour of the oldest books in the long publishing history of DC Comics. Almost none of the material I've covered so far has ever been reprinted, so I'm sure that it's unfamiliar to most comic fans. I'm able to read this material thanks to a large personal collection and a number of comics on microfiche. I've added quite a number of 1930s DCs to my collection in recent years. I find them fascinating artifacts from a nearly forgotten past. Given that not many current fans have access to this material, and probably by its very nature, I don't really get much feedback from listeners, but I would love to hear from you, so feel free to write into the show and let me know what you think. I'm sure there are at least a handful of people out there that listen. I hope. (laughs) Send your comments or questions to dchistory at mikesamazingworld.com. There's a link in the show notes. I did get one missive this time around from Matthew Cody. Matthew writes, Mike, I have enjoyed your podcast thus far and find it very to be very informative. That was a proper salute to Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson. I love the regular episodes you have done as well as the other ones. I was actually writing to inform you that Per Degaden has stolen your, co- your comic collection. I, for one, would love to hear you recover it. I will search for Flash number 268 at a comic convention, since it seems like that would be appropriate. I hope you are all settled in after your move. Matthew T. Cody. Thanks for your feedback, Matthew. Uh, Good luck finding Flash number 268. Just don't get your hopes up too high before reading it. It was kind of disappointing. As for Perdegaton, I think I saw him washing some test tubes in Professor Z's laboratory recently. I don't think he's much of a problem now. Uh, I doubt that the professor will ever finish his time machine, so my collection should be safe. I mean, come on, the last thing I heard was that Professor Z had turned to that zany Doc Brown for advice. Everybody knows that Doc Brown's inventions never work. Have you seen his crazy mind-reading helmet? I mean, come on, what a laugh. I really did want to give Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson his due. He was ever so important to the creation of the company that I fell in love with. I wanted to give him a proper send-off. I'm glad that you found the episode interesting and informative. One book that I forgot to mention during my coverage of the Major's rather unceremonious departure was New Book of Comics number two. This was the third and final Golden Age reprint book put out by Nicholson. Some consider these books to be the first annuals. New Book of Comics number two reprinted features from More Fun number 15, 16, and New Comics number 11. The book has no indicia to indicate exactly when it was published, but it probably came out in early 1938, just as Nicholson was going out the door. Coincidentally, New Adventure Comics number 25, which was one of the two comics published by A.I. Menon after the major filed for bankruptcy, had a couple of reprints also. These reprinted features from More Fun number 14 and New Comics number 4. Those four books, The Three Annuals and New Adventure Number 25, were the only time the Major used reprinted material. Using reprints was a standard practice for most of his competitors. And who was that competition, you ask? When Nicholson started out in 1935, 
The only other regular comic book was Famous Funnies, published by Eastern Color. Just three years later, more than a half a dozen new publishers entered the comic book marketplace. Those publishers were responsible for more than a dozen new titles, not including Nicholson's More Fun, New Adventure, and Detective Comics. George Delacourt, who had been involved in comics since the publication of The Funnies in 1929, returned to comics in 1936 with a line of Dell Comics. Their titles included Popular Comics, The Funnies, and just the comics. Most of the content was syndicated comic strip reprints. They also used material from Big Little Books, provided by comic packager Stephen Schlesinger. Dell did publish some original material, including a semi-autobiographical strip called Scribbly, drawn by ex-Nicholson artist Sheldon Mayer. Scribbly debuted in Popular Comics number 6 and was a regular feature in The Funnies until 1939. Mayer then departed from Dell to join Max Gaines at his new company, All-American Comics. Scribbly came with him. Two newspaper syndicates started their own publishing ventures during this time. King Features turned to David McKay Company to reprint their syndicated comic strips. Cigar's Thimble Theater, starring Popeye, headlined King Comics, which began in 1936. That same year, the United Features Syndicate used Tarzan as the headliner in their Tip Top Comics, which reprinted, among other things, the Tarzan Sunday pages. Another major player in the pre-Superman comic book industry was Busy Arnold's Comics Favorites, Inc. They released their first title, Feature Funnies, in late 1937, edited by Ed Cronin, the creator of Marty McCann, published that same year in More Fun Comics. Like Eastern Color, David McKay, Dell, and United Features, Arnold's Feature Funnies was mostly composed of syndicated comic strips such as Joe Palooka. A couple of years later, Arnold expanded his line with new characters and titles, many of which were created by Will Eisner. Arnold's comic favorites became known as Quality Comics. Although the company is no more, many of its characters have been incorporated into the DC Universe. These include the likes of Black Hawk, Plastic Man, Uncle Sam, Doll Man, and everyone's perennial favorite, the Red Bee. While Feature Funnies started out as more or less all reprint, the third issue did introduce original material starring George Brenner's character, The Clock, who actually got his start at another company. Former Nicholson editors Cook and Mann started the Comics Magazine Company in 1936. Among their handful of titles were the Funny Pages and Funny Picture Stories, both of which featured The Clock, who debuted in Funny Picture Stories number one. The Clock was the first masked hero in comics, predating DC's Crimson Avenger by almost exactly two years. When Cook and Man sold their titles to new ownership in 1937, Brenner took his character to Arnold. Meanwhile, Chesler Publications, uh, created by Harry Chesler, started up in 1937 with Star Comics. The first six issues of that title were oversized, larger than the now standard famous funny size. Late in 1937, Chesler's two titles, the other being Star Ranger, were sold to the same company which took over Cook and Man's Comics Magazine Company. The new company published under the name Ultim, with Chesler staying on board as the editor. A few months later, Ultim's title underwent 
Ultim's titles underwent another ownership change. They were sold to Centaur Publications. At that time, Harry Chesler left his post to become a packager of comics material. He wound up employing a number of artists and sold content to a variety of publishers. One of the Ultim owners, Frank Temerson, would return to comics and some other small, less memorable company in other comic book publishing ventures. Centaur and its predecessor companies did publish mostly original material, just like Nicholson. However, they had a hard time finding lasting success. In 1939, they introduced Bill Everett's Amazing Man. That character and the Arrow, no, not the Arrow from TV, were arguably Centaur's only notable characters. Their comic division folded just about the time of the sneak attack at Pearl Harbor in 1941. Their early demise and lack of memorable characters are reasons to per perceive Centaur's output as third-rate when compared to the rest of their peers. Still, much of the talent working at Centaur would go on to make big contributions at other companies. The aforementioned Bill Everett created Submariner for Marvel. Artist Jack Cole, famous for the creation of Plastic Man, also got his start at Centaur. In early 1938, at the newly consolidated Detective Comics, Inc., there was a creative void left behind following the departure of Nicholson. Newly promoted editor-in-chief Vin Sullivan needed to find material to fill out the contents of three ongoing comics and a new fourth title, Action Comics. One of the first noticeable changes to the contents of these comics was an influx of new talent that seemed to arrive right as the ownership change occurred. Many of these new artists at Detective were not new to comic books. This was a departure from the early Nicholson days when the major was recruiting pulp artists and complete amateurs. The expansion of the comic industry in the years between 1935 and 1938 had enlarged the talent pool upon which comic publishers could draw. Some artists cut their chops at Centaur or its predecessors, Jerry Iger and Will Eisner had also formed a studio which employed young artists and produced work for multiple companies and publications, including Iger's own Wow What a Magazine. The most significant of the Iger shop alums who joined Detective Comics in early 1938 was Robert Kahn, a.k.a. Bob Kane. Kane was a young artist whose work had been used in Wow What a Magazine and in at least one story for the Comics Magazine Company in early 1937. But just how young was he really? Bob Kane was born in October 1915 in New York City and was friends in high school with Will Eisner. So if you do the math, he was 22 in early 1938. His birth date is confirmed by Social Security records. Keep in mind that Social Security wasn't established until 1935, so Kane himself reported this date to the government, 20 years after he was born. A bio, which appeared in Batman No. 1, published in 1940, indicates that Kane was 24. This also supports Kane's birth year as 1915. So why does any of that matter? The reason why Kane's birth year is so important would not be apparent for another seven or eight years. Kane's age was an important piece in a, in a mostly fictional myth perpetrated by King, Kane himself surrounding his most famous creation. 
But that creation was still more than a year away from publication. When Kane came to work for Detective, he produced three other features. The first starred a little girl named Ginger Snap. She debuted in More Fun Comics number 31, the first issue officially published under new ownership of Detective Comics, Inc. Ginger had curly black hair, and she always wore a big bow. The bow often matched her dress color, which was often red with polka dots. Under the dress, she often wore bloomers, which were frequently exposed. Ginger was approximately 8 or 10 years old. Each two-page story showed Ginger getting into a comedic form of mischief, whether it involved letting a baby get carried away by helium balloons, shooting other kids with a pea shooter, or falling through the ice while skating. The Ginger, tap ta Ginger Snap Tales were good, innocent fun. Ginger appeared regularly in more fun comics from number 31 to number 43. After that, her appearances became more regular probably because Kane's other creations began to take him away from the Ginger Snap feature. The last, 20, the last of 20 Ginger Snap stories appeared in Batman number 4, published in 1941. The two stories which appeared in that title were published using Kane's pseudonyms, Ted Ray and Lou Reed. That same month that Ginger Snap debuted, Kane's creation Professor Doolittle appeared in New Adventure Comics number 26, cover dated May 1938. Like Ginger Snap, the Professor Doolittle strip was always a two-page comedy feature. Doolittle appeared in 15 stories between New Adventure number 26 and Adventure Comics number 47. The strip featured an older man in a top hat, suit, and bow tie. He was mostly bald with just tufts of white hair over the ears and a bushy white mustache. His look was completed by a pair of spectacles which rested on the bridge of his nose. Doolittle's credentials as a professor were never made clear. He was simply an old man having misadventures around town. In one tale, he goes fishing and catches a tire in an old boot. When he reels in a box of sardines, he's finally satisfied. At least he can eat those sardines. That tale is pretty representative of the humor found in the Professor Doolittle strips. They were largely sight gags. Most of the early ones, and those featuring Ginger Snap for that matter, didn't even contain dialogue. Personally, I like Ginger Snap slightly better, probably because the old man wasn't as cute as the little girl. Kane's early work for Detective Comics Inc. was not limited to humor features. He also created an adventure serial called Rusty and His Pals, which was a pastiche of Terry and the Pirates. The serial began with a five-page installment in New Adventure Comics number 26. Subsequent chapters were each four pages in length. As the story opens, Rusty, a young blonde boy, probably 10 to 12 years old, constructs a raft with his two pals, Spex and Tubby. They take the raft on the river, but due to an unforeseen storm, the boys are swept out to sea. The raft is discovered by a pirate ship. This ship isn't a real pirate ship, but rather an exhibition ship for tourists. I mean, I would assume that there wouldn't be still pirate ships in 1930, but um, <laughs> who knows? Uh, but anyway, this is an exhibition ship. This ship is bound for England and takes the boys on board. One of the ship's passengers, Steve Carter, a dark-haired action hero in the style of Pat Ryan from Caniff's Pirate Strip. Before reaching England, the ship is hijacked by opium smugglers led by Long Sin, 
who represents a typical uh, period racial caricature of a Chinese man. While the boys hide, Steve Carter is captured and forced to walk the plank. He falls into the ocean, but Rusty and his pals come to the rescue. The foursome, foursome then swim to a small island. On the island, they encounter a giant sword-wielding native called Omar, who guides them to the island's owner, Ichabod Slade. Slade turns out to be a counterfeiter and chases the boys around the island. When they take refuge in a cave, they meet Alfred Forrest, the man who discovered the island, but was betrayed by Slade. Working together, Steve, Forrest, and the boys manage to capture Slade and his men. However, Long, Sli Long Sin and his crew have landed on the island. The pirate ship was sunk during a storm. Long Sin and Slade team up against Steve and his friends, who are now joined by uh, Diane the Duchess, Slade's former partner. When an earthquake strikes the island, Steve and his group make it to Slade's seaplane and escape. The crooks are left behind on the island as it sinks back into the ocean. The seaplane runs out of fuel, but the group is found at sea by a passing ship which takes them back to civilization. Rusty and his pals arrive in London and give their story to reporters. Chen Fu, Long Sin's boss, wants revenge for the loss of his opium shipment. Chen Fu kidnaps Rusty, then forces Steve to surrender. Although nearly killed, the two heroes escape the opium den and make it to a riverboat. A chase ensues. Their escape is nearly cut off when an ocean liner approaching the pier blocks their way. Are you Steve and Rusty make it through, but just like their pursuers in the Last Crusade, Chen Fu's men do not. Once they're in the clear, Steve takes them to Scotland Yard. With the help of pol the police, Steve and Rusty stop Chen Fu once and for all. When the adventure is over, Steve and Diane decide to marry. Steve offers the three boys all orphans to come live with them, but Rusty and his pals decline, choosing to hit the road for another adventure. The story was fun and action-packed. While starting off as an adventure of three boys, Tubby and Specs get shoved into the background really quickly in favor of Steve Carter. Once Carter is introduced, the dynamic between he and Rusty mirrors that of Pat Ryan and Terry Lee from Terry and the Pirates. I'm sure this was intentional as that comic strip was very popular around this time. The first serial ran in New Adventure Comics from number 26, through Adventure Comics number 45, cover dated December 1939. A second serial followed. It ran from Adventure Comics number 46 to number 52. The artwork on the second serial is slightly different from the first, which leads me to believe that it was drawn by one of Bob Kane's ghosts. The last two chapters on it don't even have the Bob Kane's signature attached, 
which supports my conclusion that Kane himself did not actually draw the second adventure. The writing on the second serial is usually attributed to Bill Finger, but no writing credit was actually included. It's possible that Finger wrote one or both of these stories. Bob Kane and Bill Finger would go on to create Batman while the first Rusty serial was still underway. The artwork on Rusty is very similar to the early Batman stories, although Batman picked up a moody tone rather quickly. I attribute the tone to that of other artists who were helping Bob Kane with the backgrounds. Batman, of course, was, Kane, was Kane's real claim to fame. Uh, he's been one of the most iconic characters in the history of comics. Kane's involvement with Batman has always been somewhat controversial, mostly because Kane himself distorted the truth on many occasions. He often denied credit to his associates, Bill Finger and later Jerry Robinson, for their contributions. By 1946, when Kane's original contract with Detective Comics was nearing time for renewal, more of Kane's untruthful ways began to surface. The first evidence of this can be found in Real Fact Comics number 5, which features a behind-the-scenes look at Kane's creation of Batman. Here, Bob implies that he created Batman alone, even though he was never involved in any writing and had turned over most of the art chores to ghosts. More insidious than that, Kane claimed to have created Batman while he was still a teenager. Now remember, I said Bob Kane was born in 1915, making him 22 when he started working for Detective Comics and before the creation of Batman. So why the lie about his age? The reason was, by claiming he was a teenager when he created Batman, he would not have been of legal age when he entered into his original contract with Detective Comics. The only real proof of his age was a birth certificate which, as was revealed in the Gerard Jones book Men of Tomorrow, Kane's family made that proof conveniently disappear. Everyone, especially artists he went to school with, like Eisner, knew Kane was lying about his age. He now claimed to have been born in 1921, but Detective was already embattled in a legal mess at the time with Siegel and Schuster. They couldn't afford to have a prolonged legal fight over their number two property because they were already having one with their number one property. So they capitulated and partial ownership of Batman reverted to Kane. He also received a work contract for Batman stories at an incredibly high page rate. This allowed Kane to hire more ghost artists and live a life of wealth and means, despite doing little or nothing himself, all based on lies. Needless to say, I do not think highly of Bob Kane as a person. Still, he did co-create Batman, and I did rather enjoy his work on Rusty and his pals. I can respect the work, even if I don't respect the actions of the man who drew it. Bob Kane is certainly the most well-known by today's audience when compared to other DC artists of this generation. However, Fred Gardner had the most significant immediate impact. Gardner was a native, native New York artist who got his start in comics working for Harry Chesler on the title Star Ranger. His work appeared in a number of Chesler comics in short one-off stories and on semi-regular features such as Lion Lou and Dan Hastings. Thus far, I haven't seen any evidence that he ever worked for Centaur, so he may have parted ways with Chesler when Centaur acquired the titles from Ultim. 
When he joined Detective Comics, Inc. in early 1938, he was assigned to continue two strips formerly drawn by Craig Flessel, Speed Saunders, and Pep Morgan. Flessel was still drawing covers for Detective, but after the departure of the Major, it would be a couple of years before Flessel returned to doing much interior work. Gardiner's Speed Saunders' work begins with The Case of the Missing Corpse in Detective Comics number 16, cover dated June 1938. In that story, likely written by Gardner Fox, Speed and the police find a corpse in a manhole. The dead man is Joseph Bannon, recently deceased from pneumonia. When Speed unearths Bannon's grave, they find a murdered G-man inside. The case is eventually resolved with the capture of an opium smuggler, Mike Bruno. Gardner's work, identified by his initials FBG in the final panel, is very solid. He makes good use of shadow and has a very angular style in his figure work. One of the traits Gardner introduces in this story is Speed's jacket, which is drawn with a cross-hatch pattern. This same coat would become a mainstay of Speed's attire through Detective Comics number 23. Gardner also had a nice run as the artist of Speed's adventures. He drew the feature through number 43, cover dated September 1940. The second feature Gardner inherited was Pep Morgan, The Adventures of a Star Athlete from Ardale. Pep debuted in More Fun number 12. His feature ran through number 29 of that title with art by Flessel. When Gardner took over, the feature was moved to Detective Inc.'s new title, Action Comics. Pep's feature was the only one that debuted in the first issue of Action Comics, which wasn't completely new. Gardner often drew the strip using the pseudonym Gene Baxter. In Action Comics number one, Pep fights Sailor Sorensen for the light heavyweight championship. He wins the bout despite the dirty tricks pulled by Sorensen's manager, Doc Lowry. Although the cheating can't be proven, Lowry is forced to leave town. He returns months later as the manager of an Australian Bushman fighter. More dirty tricks ensue until the Bushman and Pep are set to square off. Again, Pep wins this fight, during which his opponent tried to drug him using a hypodermic needle concealed in his glove. This time, Lowry is caught and sent to prison. More Pep Morgan adventures followed, with the versatile athlete competing in a variety of sports. Pep knows baseball, Pep knows car racing, Pep knows swimming, Pep knows sailing, football, skiing, and more. Gardner's artwork throughout the series is clean with excellent storytelling. Pep's sports adventures, however, were not all that exciting or interesting to me. I found it unbelievable that Pep could be a star athlete in every sport. Pep, you don't know diddly. But beginning in Action Comics number 11, Pep broke out of the sports mold. In that story, he is shanghaied and taken aboard a ship full of gunrunners headed to the South American country of Latveria. <laughs> oh wait, make that Latara. Pep escapes, swims to shore, and gets the authorities to stop the gunrunners. In the next issue, Pep is still in Latara, where he saves the life of their president from some assassins who were in league with the gunrunners. The president's physical appearance is very reminiscent of a certain magician whose name rhymes with the country Latara. An issue later, Speed heads home aboard a freighter that is hijacked by the gunrunner 
Captain Sindra. Once again, Speed foils his plot. The story aboard the ship continues in the next issue. Pep finally makes it home in Action Comics number 15. He then begins working for Mr. Smith, a man he met on the freighter. During his employment, Pep stops some crooks and befriends Smith's daughter, Mary. Although presented as a series of single-issue stories, Pep's adventures in Action Comics number 11 to 19 form one larger continuity. Pep returns to the sports world in Action Comics number 20, which shows him playing baseball for his hometown team. As the series continues, there is little or no continuity from issue to issue. Not even regular supporting characters like Mr. Smith turn up. It's also interesting to note that Pep is depicted reading comics in a few stories. Gardner left the feature in 1940. Action Comics number 27, cover dated August, is the last issue to carry his byline. He may have had a hand in number 28, which carries no credit. The art does look significantly different in that one, except perhaps for a car which does look to be drawn in Gardner's style. In terms of story, I like the middle part which started with Pep's trip to South America. Once that continuity ended, the feature devolved into generic and really uninteresting fare. Surprisingly, the feature plotted along for another year following Gardner's departure. Pep Morgan wasn't the only Fred Gardner feature to appear in that landmark first issue of Action Comics. He also created Latara. No, I mean Zatara, Master Magician. Zatara was clearly a knockoff of Lee Falk's comic strip hero Mandrake the Magician, who debuted in 1934 with King Features. Mandrake's adventures were also being published in King Comics, published by David McKay. Not only did Zatara share the same profession as Mandrake, their appearance and clothing were nearly identical, from top hat to cape. Both outfits were modeled from classic stage magician costumes. One missing detail in Zatara's first appearance was his thin mustache. This didn't make its debut until the second issue, which completed Zatara's look. In Zatara's first adventure, entitled The Mystery of the Freight Train Robberies, the magician is assisted by his loyal servant Tong, a shirtless muscle man with tan skin and a green turban. Like many characters of non-white origin in these early comics, Tong often spoke in broken English. However, I found him to be a less offensive racial stereotype than most. Tong was a regular in Zatara's strip for the first couple of years. He then appeared only sporadically until 1942 when he made his last appearance. In that story, Zatara and Tong assist Detective Brady in guarding a freight train, which his crystal ball has revealed will soon be robbed. However, Brady is killed, and only Zatara believes that he wasn't working with the robbers, who are led by Zatara's arch-nemesis, the Tigress. More about her in a moment. Zatara continues the investigation to catch the robbers and clear Brady's name. The magician solves the case, which leads to the arrest of the thieves and their inside man, train inspector Babcock. The Tigress, however, escapes. It is notable that Zatara's magic manifests in multiple ways in the first adventure. It activates automatically when he is thrown from the train. The magic slows his fall and cushions his landing. He also speaks verbally in reverse to cast spells. This would eventually become his signature way of using magic. A reader could read the printed words backwards to determine what Zatara was saying. 
Finally, Zatara could use hand gestures to perform his magic. This included turning a gun of the Tigress into a bullet, as indicated by the caption. But the drawing actually makes it look like a banana. Zatara's multiple applications of his magic were eventually dropped, and in later adventures, he was virtually powerless except for his backward-spoken spells, a power inherited by his daughter Zatanna, who debuted 25 years later and became an integral part of the DC Universe. While Zatanna is more well-known today than her father, Zatara himself popped up every now and then during the Silver and Bronze Age. He would ultimately meet his demise during Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, near the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths. He never reached the height of his Action Comics co-star, Superman, but his strip did manage a good 13-year run on its own. I mentioned that uh, Zatara's arch-enemy was the Tigress, a blonde woman wearing red bandana. This story makes it clear that the two had encountered each other before. They would meet again in Action Comics number 3, and at least a dozen stories between number 1 and number 42, published in 1941. This makes the Tigress the first truly recurring villain to appear in the DC Universe. The only other possible choice might be Fui on Yui, the Slam Bradley villain from Detective Comics number 1 and number 22. This Tigress is not the same woman who married the Sportsmaster. That villainess started off as the Huntress, a foe of Wildcat. That's Paula Brooks. Her name was changed to the Tigress to avoid confusion with Helena Wayne, the Batman's daughter. Zatara's foe has not been seen since 1941. I do find it interesting that it became a trope in comics for male heroes to let the female villains escape. Batman often did this with Catwoman. Another one that comes to mind is King Standish, an obscure character from early issues of Flash comics who often battled his friendly enemy, the Witch. Zatara seems to have the same problem as he lets the Tigress elude him again and again, while he always captures the male villains. That's not to say that the Tigress is never apprehended. He does catch her in action number seven, only to have her return in action number nine as a brunette. Fred Gardiner drew the adventures of Zatara through at least action comics number 28, the last to, to bear his byline. He probably drew number 29, though it doesn't bear his signature. Other artists, including Joseph Solman and William F. White, would succeed Gardner in continuing Zatara's adventures, which lasted into the early 1950s. It is believed that Gardner wrote the early adventures of Zatara by himself, but it is known that Gardner Fox soon became the regular writer on the strip. In addition to appearing in each issue of Action Comics, Zatara also appeared both in the 1939 and 1940 editions of New York's World Fair comics. The first was definitely drawn by Gardner, the second carried no byline, and may have been drawn by Solman. If so, this would have been the very first Zatara story not done by Gardner. The 1939 edition was one of only four covers to feature Zatara. He also appeared on the covers of Action Number 12 and 14, both by Gardner. Yes, it's true, not every issue of Action Comics featured Superman on the cover. The other cover featuring Zatara was Action Comics number 52 from 1942. I'll likely cover more of Zatara's adventures by other artists, including those that appeared in World's Finest Comics, in later episodes. 
Gardner contributed a handful of early Action Comics covers which did not feature Superman. The cover of Action Comics number 9, for example, depicts a car race that seems to have been pulled from the Pep Morgan story from Action number 3, not number 9. Gardner also drew a few covers for Adventure, Detective, and more fun comics. The last feature Gardner created at DC was called Anchors Away. The action strip debuted in New Adventure Comics number 28, dated July 1938. The star of Anchors Away was Don Carey, a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy. His first mission was to track down El Diablo, described as the most dangerous man on the continent. He starts revolutions and betrays anyone to gain his own ends. Carey, joined by his pal Red Murphy, heads for the consulate in Rio, where Marvin is, was stationed. Marvin was an investigator that was killed by El Diablo. After a failed attempt on their lives, the Navy men plan to question two suspects. However, the prisoners are killed after a meeting with a Navy man named Marshall, who is stationed at the U.S. Embassy. Don and Red split up to follow leads. Don uncovers a smuggling operation run by Captain Zocoro under the command of El Diablo. After a back-and-forth confrontation, Don barely makes it off Zocoro's ship before it explodes. Meanwhile, Red follows some men back to El Diablo himself. The villain is wearing a green business suit and a hood resembling those worn by the KKK, except for the hood is black. He looks more ridiculous than imposing. Red is captured and used to lure Carrie into a trap. Carrie has survived the exploding ship, finally gets around to questioning Marshall at the American Embassy. He doesn't do much more than question, though. He is interrupted by a phone call from Red's kidnappers, leading him to Martinez, a coffee planter. It's really a trap set up by El Diablo, now wearing a red hood. Don has a squad of Marines come up to back him up, and together they rescue Red, but El Diablo escapes. When they return to the embassy, Marshall is gone and the papers are missing. Marshall is suspected of being El Diablo, but Don Carey isn't so sure. A message from Marshall leads them to a prison which holds Marshall. Don and Red break the man out, and they flee into the jungle. Red gets separated from the others, and Marshall is wounded. They barely escape from El Diablo's men and some natives. Red turns up with Fernando, Marshall's treacherous aide, who can prove his boss's innocence. Fernando ends up murdered before he can be interrogated, so Don and Red continue their search for El Diablo elsewhere. They are captured and learn that the villains plans to attack a battleship. El Diablo's men have taken over a fort and will fire on the unsuspecting ship with real shells. Carrie and Murphy escape in time to stop the attack. They then point out El Diablo is the merchant von Stolz, who was given away by his German accent. The El Diablo serial ends in Adventure Comics number 37. A new adventure begins in that same issue, which takes Carrie and Murphy to Shanghai. Number 37 is also the last to use Gardner's byline. Artist Bart Toomey takes over for him, though Gardner may have had a hand in the art on the next two issues. While Anchors Away is certainly an action-packed strip, I felt it suffered from some really odd pacing issues. Parts of this story just seemed to go by too quickly, while others dragged on and on and on. 
I've long been familiar with Gardner's art style from his work on Zatara. It can be rigid at times, maybe stiff, but this artwork wasn't stiff, but it didn't excite me either. It certainly isn't my favorite strip, but I'll check back on it in the future to see how the other artists handled it. Maybe Bart Toomey's artwork is a little bit better. Toomey's run lasted through the conclusion of the strip in Adventure Comics number 52. Artist Bernard Bailey was another young artist to break in at Detective Comics, Inc. in early 1938. Like Bob Kane, Bailey got his start working for Eisner and Iger. His early work was included in Wow! What a Magazine. He also contributed a series of Hollywood profile features called Screen Snapshots, which ran in Feature Funnies, published by Busy Arnold. At Detective Comics, Bailey did similar work on single-page features called Stardust and Flashes from Filmdom, which began appearing in early 1938. Bailey's first full-length feature debuted in Action Comics number 1 alongside Superman and Zatara. The strip starred oil tycoon Tex Thompson. Tex is part detective and part adventurer. He also starts out as part cowboy, but that aspect of Tex's character is quickly eliminated from the feature. In the first issue, Tex is accused of murder while visiting England. He eventually proves his innocence and catches the real killers. The first story is 12 pages in length and has some space to breathe, unlike many of the shorter stories in these comics. It's a simple tale and nothing special. I do find Bailey's artwork very interesting. He effectively uses shadow in ways that many artists of this era did not. Still, his figures are slightly weird looking and oftentimes have misshapen features. The crook on page 11 of Action Comics number 1 has some serious blockhead issues. Texas' second adventure, which kicks off in Action Comics number 2, is a three-part serial. Part 1 of the adventure appears to have been truncated. Texas' feature usually ran 12 12 pages in the early issues, but there's only six pages in action number two. Furthermore, the story begins with a large chunk of expository text. While this itself was not unusual, these text blocks often indicated that details from the previous issues. This one, however, is completely new information. This leads me to believe that the first six pages were cut out to save space and their contents were summarized in the caption. I'm not sure if that's what really happened or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. In any case, this issue introduces us to Bob Daly, who became Texas' faithful sidekick. Bob is shown to be bald, overweight, and a middle-aged man with glasses. This contrasted strongly with the young and rugged blonde-haired Tex, who no longer sports the cowboy hat he wore in his first adventure. Tex and Bob are searching for a mythical city supposedly sealed off from the outside world by a volcanic eruption. They find an entrance to the city through a cave. Then, they are attacked soon after entering it. The duo is then taken to a strange-looking character called the Gora. When I say strange-looking, I mean it. The Gora is drawn in many ways to resemble a Chinese character from the pulps of the day. He has yellowish skin and clothing to match. However, the Gora's distinctive feature is a giant single eye in the center of his face. Yes, he's a cyclops. The Gora feeds them dinner, appearing to be hospitable, but Tex is suspicious. 
His misgivings turn out to be correct when he and Bob are led into a trap after their meal. They fall into a pit filled with water and are carried away from the city. When the adventurers can reach dry land, they encounter a man buried up to his neck in the sand. The man is covered with ants. Tex digs him out and is formed that he is the real Gora, the leader of the sealed city. Together, the trio return to the city and overthrow the Cyclops Gora, who falls into the, his own pit trap and is believed to be dead. In part three of this adventure, the real Gora welcomes Tex and Bob to the city. Then, a rebel leader named Rob Kazan attacks, taking the Gora and Bob captive. Tex rescues them, of course, forcing the rebel leader to flee. Not a bad little adventure. Remember what I said, though, about the Cyclops Gora appearing to be dead? Well, this is comics. Don't believe anyone is truly dead unless there is a body. The villain returns several times to fight Tex, although in subsequent adventures there's no mention of the fact that he is not the real Gora. He returned in a two-part tale in Action Comics number 17 and 18, then again in Action number 27 and 28. He made his final appearance against Tex, who is now a costume crime fighter, named Mr. America, in Action Comics number 38. That's right, Tex Thompson would eventually join the ranks of the costume superheroes, which were popping up all over the place after the success of Superman. Tex became Mr. America in Action Comics number 33. Bob, the faithful sidekick, became known as Fat Man. Yes, that was the name he really used. But before donning the tights, Tex went through a variety of adventures. He even got a second sidekick in Action Comics number 15 named Gargantua T. Potts. I've spoken about period racism and other poor depictions of minorities in comics of the day. It wasn't just comics, movies and theater and all media were not all that sensitive to representations of minorities. But I've got to say that Gargantua T. Potts may be the worst I've seen in comics. Even when tr trying to view Potts through a filter of the times in which these stories were published, I find him to be extremely offensive. Um, in thinking about it, his initial re appearance reminds me of Jar Jar Binks. I don't think I can be any less complimentary than that. Fortunately, Potts was written out of the strip after less than a year. Action Comics number 26 explains that Potts joined the French Foreign Legion. Action number 26 is also a pivotal issue for Tex. In it, he is introduced to District Attorney Maloney and his daughter Janice. In subsequent stories, Janice was called Peggy. She also had another identity as the mysterious Miss X, who secretly helped Tex on cases. Tex's adventure from this point on take a government agent feel as he chases racketeers. These stories would eventually lead directly to him becoming Mr. America. That's one of the best things about Tex's adventures for me. Tex's strip showed more evolution uh, than many of its contemporary features. I'll cover Tex's Mr. America adventures in a future episode. At the same time Bernard Bailey was drawing Tex Thompson, he also contributed another original feature called The Buccaneer, which debuted in More Fun Comics number 32, cover dated June of 1938. The Buccaneer was a period piece set during the time of colonial America. The story, told in serial, begins on a sailing vessel called the Serpent under the command of Captain Sly. 
the captain sends his mate Deneo ashore to find one more crew member for their next voyage. Deneo finds a young man in a local pub who is drunk. The man is shanghaied and taken aboard the ship. This practice of getting crew members is actually historically accurate. Men are sometimes kidnapped and taken aboard ships. Once at sea, the young man, Dennis Stone, has little choice but to cooperate. Deneo, who feels guilty for kidnapping Stone, befriends the young man. Shortly thereafter, Stone finds himself in a confrontation after the captain drunkenly attacks a female passenger aboard the ship. The fight results in the accidental death of Captain Sly. Stone quickly pr proves his mettle to the rest of the crew and proclaims himself the captain. When the serpent meets its first port of call, Captain Stone discovers that the ship is scheduled to take on slaves as cargo. Stone refuses to take part in the slave trade, making an enemy of Captain Claw. He also makes a new friend named Kabaz, who he rescues from a life of slavery. Kabaz is a crippled dwarf of a man with crazy eyes. Captain Stone, Kabaz, and Deneo then face off against Captain Claw. Stone learns from Claw that the governor of Billsburg is funding the slave trade, so Stone goes to confront him. Several battles are fought between Stone and his enemies. When Stone is wounded aboard the deck of Claw's ship, Deneo kidnaps the governor's daughter, Regina, to act as the captain's nurse. With the, with the girl aboard the serpent, Claw is unable to fire upon the ship without risking her life. When Stone recovers, he returns the girl to her father and is captured in the process. Regina, surprised, surprised by the honor of the supposed pirate, begs her father to spare Stone. He throws Stone in jail, then arranges with the local judge to secretly execute the pirate. During the governor's shady dealings, Regina discovers that her father is indeed a slaver as Stone accused him. She threatens to expose him unless he releases the pirate. Stone is given a chance to run before being shot in the back. Meanwhile, Kabaz and Deneo searching for their missing captain. They locate Captain Claw and from him learn where Stone is being held. They then disguise themselves as guards and enter the governor's stronghold. Aided by Regina, Deneo and Kabaz find the wounded Captain Stone and get away. The girl then shoots her father's partner, who is the mayor. This last bit takes place in More Fun Comics number 43. From here, the strip takes a slightly different direction. Weeks pass and Captain Stone recovers from his injuries. A storm is brewing at sea, so the crew goes ashore. Stone, Deneo, and Kabaz seek refuge in a nearby castle. They are invited inside by a sinister-looking man named Dr. Kilman. The castle is called Castle Terror. Stone and his friends soon hear cries for help inside the castle. Kilman claims that the castle is, is the home of mental, the mentally deranged. He explains that the, that the scream came from a patient who believes himself to be a king. Stone is suspicious, so he finds the man who is really the Prince of Natria. Stone and his friends are captured and left to die in the castle from a bomb planted by Kilman. The captain defuses the bomb before it explodes. Stone then brings the prince aboard the serpent with an offer to take him home. However, Kilman has sto stowed away on board and bribes the crew into starting a mutiny. Stone and his friends are forced to walk the plank and left to die in the ocean. 
They make it to a small skiff and several days uh, spend several days perilously close to death before they reach shore. Once ashore, they track down Kilman. Stone disguises himself. He pretends to be Dr. Barrows, a mind reader. Using this bruise, he gets Kilman to take him back on board the Serpent. He and the others then regain control of the ship, finally defeating Kilman. In More Fun number 49, Stone takes the Prince of Natria home uh, to a small island between Mexico and the colonies. The throne of Natria is currently occupied by a usurper, which causes Stone and the others to approach using stealth. The captain uses a disguise to sneak into the palace where he is reunited with Regina. The reunion is cut short when the usurpers enter. Stone is escorted out, but he escapes and helps the prince to mount an attack. However, that attack seems to have been lost to time, because between more fun number 50 and more fun number 51, the story seems to skip ahead. I suspect a chapter of the story is missing and was never printed. If you've listened to my previous episodes, you probably know that this was an all-too-frequent occurrence during this era. Fortunately, each chapter of the story had a text intro to catch the reader up on previous chapters. After the recap, Captain Stone helps to rescue Regina's father, who is being brutally beaten. The governor promises to give up the slave trade trade, and agrees to pardon Stone. Several weeks later, the serpent puts ashore. Captain Stone disembarks to marry Regina and give up command of the ship. He leaves it in the hands of the faithful Deneo and Cabaz. This brought the serial of the Buccaneer to an end in More Fun Comics number 51. The last panel on the page shows the specter. Who is he? What is he? Read this brand new feature in the next issue of More Fun Comics. So what I suspect happened here is that the Buccaneer was canceled to make room for the specter. The specter, also drawn by Bailey, was written by Superman creator Jerry Siegel. Rather than cut the Buccaneer off in the middle, they skipped a chapter or more and wrapped up the story quickly to give it a proper ending. This was very unusual, but not a bad thing. I would have liked to read the missing pages, though. I wonder if they were ever drawn. Despite the abrupt ending, The Buccaneer is one of my favorite strips from this era. From a storytelling perspective, this was miles ahead of many of the other serials running concurrently in More Fun and New Adventure. The pacing was good, and the story was entertaining. The artwork, while not great, was pretty good. Each character had a distinct look and was easily distinguished. That wasn't true for some of the cruder features. After wrapping up The Buccaneer, I mentioned that Bernard Bailey co-created The Spectre. A couple of months later, another Bailey co-creation debuted in Adventure Comics, The Hour Man. He continued working for Detective Comics, Inc. through most of World War II. His last Spectre story was More Fun Number 101, which went on sale in late 1944. Bailey left and opened his own studio. The studio did work for several smaller publishers of the late 1940s. Artists at the studio included the likes of John Gianta, Gil Kane, and Carmine Infantino. Bailey also did some work on comic strips, such as Gilda Gay. In the early 1950s, Bailey returned to, to D.C., His work appeared in titles like Gangbusters and Mr. District Attorney. Concurrently, he worked on Atlas-era Marvel titles like Strange Tales. He continued working for DC through the 1960s, but his work of the time has largely gone unnoticed by collectors because he did little superhero work. 
The one exception was the Bob Haney scripted team up of Flash and Martian Manhunter that appeared in Brave and the Bold number 56. Bailey's legacy will largely be the creation of the Spectre and Our Man, but Tex Thompson and the Buccaneer are both quality features that exhibited storytelling ahead of their time. Not all of the new artists show up at Detective Comics Inc. in 1938 were given long-running features. Comics of the era featured a number of short gag strips that appeared irregularly in many titles. Young cartoonist Fred Schwab was already a veteran when he began his work at DC in 1938. Schwab was born in New York in 1917 and was another artist who got his start working for Eisner and Iger in early 1937. He worked on several comedy shorts such as Tenderfoot Joe, which appeared in Chesler's Star Comics and Star Ranger. When Chesler's books were taken over by Ultim, Schwab strips like The Great Boudini turned up in several titles such as The Funny Pages. At Detective Comics, Schwab contributed many one to two page humor features. The first and most enduring was called Butch the Pup. It debuted as a two page feature in New Adventure Comics number 27, cover dated June 1938. Butch was a yellow dog with a face full of whiskers that made him look like an old man. Butch appeared in 19 issues between 1938 and early 1940 mostly in more fun, but his strip also made appearances in action and adventure comics. Through many of the shorts, Butch frequently gets into fights with cats and other dogs. He also tore up furniture quite regularly. Like other funny animals, Butch often spoke to other dogs, but not to humans. His most notable appearance was in the 1939 edition of New York's World's Fair Comics, Butch gets lifted into the sky when a man ties a group of helium balloons to his collar. When the balloons pop, Butch falls from the sky and lands on the grounds of the World's Fair. Through the course of this four-page adventure, Butch visits many of the exhibits at the fair. He even takes a giant dinosaur bone from the prehistoric exhibit, only to find that the bone is petrified. At the food exhibit, Butch gets trapped inside a giant can of dog food, only to be released by his owner outside the fair. I like this one because it shows some of the fair's exhibits. Even the iconic Trilon and Perisphere are depicted. Fred Schwab drew some other humor features for Detective, including Tiny, eight installments, Coyote, Coyote Canyon Bill, five installments, Salty Sam, four, Catnip, three, and Henrietta, three installments. Schwab, who used several pen names, including Stockton, also took over the features Cal and Alec and Don Quixote, which I covered in Episode 7. From what I can tell, Schwab left Detective Comics in early 1940, though a couple of strips did appear later. I suspect that they have, may have been leftover inventory. After leaving, he worked on Professor Fiend for Fox Features and did at least one story for Timely-era Marvel. The last comics work I'm aware of that Schwa worked on was a Lady Luck story from 1948. Just like many artists from the Nicholson era, some newcomers still got their starts in the field of pulp magazines. Such was the case with Julian Chambers, who preferred the name Jim. After graduating from the Pratt Institute in 1936, Chambers began drawing for the pulps. He worked for several publishers and magazines, including Street and Smith's The Shadow, and Harry Donenfield's spicy detective stories. 
1937, he was also drawing Western comics for Harry Chesler's Star Ranger. When Chambers arrived at Detective Comics, Inc. in 1938, he was given three regular assignments. In More Fun Comics, he assumed the art chores on the Jack Woods feature from artist Bill Ellie. This was the oldest running strip in More Fun, having started on the cover of New Fun No. 1. Chambers was a good choice for the strip because he had experience with the Western genre in the pulps and on Star Ranger. Chambers only drew three installments of Jack Woods, which appeared in More Fun number 33 to 35. At that point, the feature was discontinued. However, four more Jack Woods episodes, also drawn by Chambers, appeared about nine months later in Adventure Comics. I don't know if these were newly commissioned stories or whether they had already been in the can and just pulled out of inventory to fill out those issues. The story from More Fun, which involves cattle rustlers, isn't continued. The last thing shown in these stories was Jack being wounded in a gunfight. The adventure comic stories, printed in black and white, pick up the story sometime later. The last of the Jack Wood stories appears in Adventure Comics number 42 and ends with Jack being arrested for murder. Since the story didn't continue and Woods has not appeared since, I guess he was sent to prison, or maybe he was hung. While some of the early Jack Wood stories, like those drawn by W.C. Brigham, were fairly interesting to me, these later stories are tedious at best. Speaking of Brigham, I was recently supplied with some new information on the artist by Beth Allman. Beth informs me that Walter Cole Brigman was not the pulp art and comic book artist. It was William C. Brigham Jr. She goes on to say that Walter Cole Brigman was a well-known artist uh, who did illustrate at least one magazine cover in 1899, but he did not draw comics. Her research indicates that the comic artist, William Clarence Brigham, born in 1895, had a New York commercial art studio in 1924 through which he, she could link his signature to the one on his comic book work. I'd like to thank Beth for bringing this error to my attention. I've also updated my website credits to properly identify William, not Walter Brigham, as the Nicholson-era artist. In addition to Chambers' work on Jack Woods, he also drew the adventures of Todd Hunter, Jungle Master, a serial which debuted in New Adventure Comics number 27, cover dated June 1938. The first installment of the serial was printed in color, while the later installments, which continued through Adventure Comics number 38, were a mix of black and white and two-color printing, black and red. Todd Hunter, traveler, explorer, and his partner Tommy Withers set out into the jungle in search of the god of the ruby eye. It is, the, it is pure legend, however, for no living person has ever seen this god or its strange people. Although many on his safari have fled, Todd is oblivious to the dangers ahead. Todd and Tommy are soon captured by savages who serve the god they are seeking. While imprisoned, Todd meets an old man who has been a captive of the natives for years. The old man informs him that a girl has, will soon be sacrificed. Todd and Tommy escape and rescue the girl, Gail Duncan. Her father is also a captive. After several more run-ins with the natives, Todd finds a giant stone idol, which is the god of the ruby eye. Inside the idol is a priest who, from a hidden vantage point, speaks commands to the natives, posing as their god. Todd uses the same trick to get the natives and their leader, Zara, to back off. 
Todd takes the ruby eyes off the idol and departs with the group. The group meets up with Gail's fiancé, Paul, and his partner, Hawkins. The two men steal the rubies and escape into the night. Todd pursues and is captured by Arabs. As the story continues, Todd gets into more tight spots. He meets up with a researcher who turns, out, turns him over to a group of cannibals who worship a gorilla. Todd loses his memory in the fight and wanders around aimlessly in the jungle. He is once again captured by some natives who are working with Paul. However, Todd wins them over and is taken to the inner sanctum of the natives, where he meets a sorcerer named Dante and Tamir, his wife. Dante hypnotizes Todd and uses him as a pawn in his war with Torog, a former king. Torog frees Todd from Dante's control and restores his memory. After that conflict is resolved, Todd sets out to find his friends Tommy and Gale. As was often the case with these serials in these early comics, the next installments of Todd's adventures were never to be seen. Many aspects of this story seem derivative of other adventure serials. I suspect it was inspired by movie serials, but I detect a trace influence from the popular comic strip Terry and his Pirates, not the first one we have covered in this episode that has that influence. This is particularly evident in Todd's encounters with Zara and later the Arabs. While the art Chambers provides is nowhere near as good as Caniff on Pirates, it is at least serviceable. What I found more off-putting, though, was the pacing. Far too much story was crammed into tiny four-page installments. There were too many elements being thrown into the story too quickly, leaving it no room to breathe. Ultimately, this serial was not a satisfying read. Exactly one month after the debut of Todd Hunter, New Adventure launched another feature drawn by Chambers called Tom Brent. Unlike Todd Hunter and Jack Woods, this feature was not a serial, but a series of standalone six-page adventures. In the first story, we are introduced to Tom Brent, who is working aboard a transport ship docked in a French port. He witnesses the murder of a watchman on the docks and inserts himself into the investigation. The killers, who are smuggling dope, try to get Brent off the case by planting drugs in his cabin on the ship. When the French police move in to arrest Tom, he is forced to flee. Despite being on the run from the cops and the smugglers, Tom manages to crack the case and the real crooks are taken into custody. While the art Chambers provides on Tom Brent is equal to that he contributed on the other two strips, the story pacing on this feature is a massive improvement. Perhaps it is the additional two pages per issue, or perhaps it was the fact that the stories were mostly self-contained that made it far more readable. That's not to say that all stories were one-and-done episodes. There was a two-part tale in New Adventure number 31 and Adventure Comics number 32. Yes, New Adventure dropped the new from its title and became just Adventure Comics with number 32. That two-parter had a cool scene with Tom piloting a small prop plane. While in the air, he finds a snake in his seat. This snake isn't named Reggie. It's a cobra. Tom survives, of course, but I'll bet he hates snakes, too. Like many stories of this era, there is no complex characterization or even background on who Brent is. At times, he seems to serve as the ship's detective and or courier. Despite that, I found the adventures, which continued through New Adventures number 39, 
better than most. Later in 1938, Chambers would create two more new characters for Detective Comics. One was the Masked Ranger, which appeared in More Fun. The other, which appeared in Detective Comics, has had a long legacy at DC, the Crimson Avenger. More on those features in future episodes. Many comic book artists of the 1930s aspired to create syndicated newspaper features. That was seen as the path to fame and fortune. The new medium of comic books had not earned the same level of respect. However, many failed comic strip pitches did find their way into comic books instead of the Sunday funnies. One such feature was the creation of artist Stanley Ashmeyer, who signed his work Stan Ash. The feature was called Just Like Junior and consisted of single panel jokes. The most famous and recognizable strip of this kind for modern readers may be The Family Circus, which started in 1960. Just Like Junior was created using this format and was at least shopped to newspaper syndicates for publication. I have found reference to the feature in connection with the McClure Syndicate in 1937, but it is unclear as to whether any installments of the strip were actually published in newspapers. While the newspaper history of the strip is somewhat uncertain, the comic book history of the feature began in New Adventure Comics number 24, cover dated February 1938. These single panel strips generally ran four to a page and featured Junior, a little red-headed kid. Most of the gags centered around making a buck or getting uh, something for nothing. This was probably a common thing for Depression-era kids who grew up in very poor economic times. The feature appeared as filler in 15 different comics over a four-year period. The last appeared in World's Best Comics No. 1 from 1941. Beginning in late 1938, uh, the single-panel format was abandoned for a more traditional comic page approach. Most of the later strips were two pages in length. In addition to the irregular appearances of Just Like Junior, Ashmeyer created a short-running feature named Marjorie Daw, which debuted in More Fun Comics number 32, cover dated June. The four-page feature ran four issues. A follow-up serial featuring Marjorie ran five issues in 1939 from More Fun number 42 to number 46. Marjorie Daw is a young blonde girl who is left in the care of Professor Booth while her rich father is in Europe on business. Booth is up to no good. He's a counterfeiter and he intends to kidnap Marjorie and ransom her back to her father. Marjorie somewhat resembles little orphan Annie, Harold Gray's popular comic strip of this era. Ashmeyer draws Marjorie with pupilless eyes, just like Annie. The art overall is decent, but simple. The plot of the story is all over the map. Clearly, Ashmeyer was still learning to tell a story. The last chapter of the story, which shows the resolution of the kidnapping plot, doesn't even involve Marjorie. A reporter named Jack Kane is suddenly introduced, and he becomes the focal point in stopping Booth and his accomplices. The second storyline was mostly printed in black and white, with chapters include, some chapters including a second color, so it was black, white, and red. This serial begins with Marjorie and her father boarding a train headed west. They meet an Indian man, uh, Dot, not the feather, named Om, who predicts the train will crash. He convinces Marjorie's father to disembark. When the train continues on, it crashes. Convinced of Om's uncanny abilities, Luther Daw accepts an invitation to go to a hidden retreat in the Idaho mountains. When they arrive, Luther Daw and Marjorie are introduced to their host, Stephen Dean. From here, things get a little crazy. Dean seems to be a lunatic with a fortune sealed in a vault. 
It gets weird when we see a giant frog statue that talks when a light bulb is put in its mouth. Later, the giant frog is used as a mask by which an individual who kills another guest and threatens Mr. Daw. Then, just as Mr. Daw shoots the frog-headed man, the story's cut off. Yes, another story without an ending because the feature was dropped. Ashfire's storytelling still leaves a lot to be desired. His art style is simplistic but clean. However, I think many modern readers would categorize it as plain and boring. I don't. Ashmeyer often uses the, the pseudonym Stan Josephs and would later pair with writer Charles Reisenstein to create two better-known characters, Dr. Midnight and Mr. Terrific. He also created everyone's least favorite JSA member, Johnny Thunder. Other artists came and went from Detective Comics rather quickly. Artist Maurice Kashuba contributed a one-shot story featuring Click Evans, newsreel cameraman. This strip was with very amateurish art and story appeared in New Adventure Comics number 26. Kashuba worked for Centaur during this period. Kashuba returned to DC in 1940, contributing another one-shot detective story featuring Kit Strong in More Fun Comics number 51. His artwork had matured significantly in the two years between the Click Evans and Kit Strong stories. The story, however, was standard detective fare, nothing special. Later in 1940, Kashuba took over the Bart Regan spy feature in Detective Comics when Joe Schuster left to focus on Superman. After a brief stint on Bart Regan, Kashuba left DC for Dell Comics, where he spent a couple of years drawing Mr. District Attorney. Vernon Henkel got his start in New Adventure Comics number 25, in which he drew The Crusades, a tale of knights fighting wars in Jerusalem. This strip was a bit of a throwback to some of the material that appeared in the first couple of years of Nicholson's books. It would be Henkel's only work at DC. He soon went to Quality, where he created The Gallant Knight, another feature set in medieval times. Henkel had a long career at Quality and spent a good portion of the 1950s working at Marvel, doing mostly war stories. He left the comic industry for advertising in the mid-1950s, when political pressure forced the comic book industry into a dark age. Gil Fox was another artist better known for his work at Quality. In early 1938, while working for the Chesler shop, he got a couple of stories published at Centaur featuring Detective Schultz. Several of his fact features focused on Hollywood celebrities of the day. These were the same or similar features to what Bernard Bailey was doing. These appeared reg irregularly from 1937 to 1939 in various DC publications. These one-off filler pages were called Off the Set and Movie Stars. He also drew one-page gag strips in More Fun Comics number 29 called Professor Bertram. Fox landed at Quality in 1940, where he served as not only an artist, but as an editor. He spent more than a decade there before exiting the industry in 1954. Gil Fox and Bernard Bailey weren't the only artists who got their starts doing short fact feature fillers. Another major artist got his start doing fact features focused on sports and Hollywood stars. Sheldon Moldoff was that artist. Born in 1920, Moldoff's first work at Detective Comics was published in New Adventure Comics number 26, the same month as that artist's 18th birthday. Just a week later, another Moldoff feature named Odds and Ends appeared on the inside back cover of Action Comics number 1.
Over the next two years, Moldoff contributed more than two dozen feature pages to various Detective Comics magazines. After fairly humble beginnings, Moldoff became one of the most prolific artists at Detective through 1944. His first star story, starring Cliff Cornwall, appeared in Flash Comics No. 1 in 1940. He also drew the iconic cover for that issue, featuring Jay Garrick's first appearance. Although not the first artist to draw Hawkman, Moldoff established the look for the early Hawkman stories. He also created the Black Pirate. More on those features in future episodes. Moldoff eventually became the primary ghost artist drawing Batman, but allowing Bob Kane to take credit. Coincidentally, Moldoff actually was a teenager when he started at DC, unlike Boss Kane. Moldoff had a long and notable career which lasted until the late 1960s. He retired from comics when DC let go a number of older artists in 1968, following their attempt to band together to get health benefits from their employer. Rather than pay the benefits, DC chose to part way with those men and replace them with young, cheap creators. Despite the abrupt end to his career, Moldoff was an extremely important and influential artist at DC for three decades. I think that just about wraps up this episode. Thank you everyone who stuck around to listen to me ramble on about long-forgotten comics and creators. Beginning with my next episode, I'll finally be getting around to a character and story that everyone should be familiar with. That's right, the dawn of the new era begins with the debut of the most important comic of all time. Keep your eyes and ears open for it. If you have comments, questions, or feedback about this or any episode of the show, please send them to dchistory at mikesamazingworld.com. And don't forget to check out my website at mikesamazingworld.com. I hope you come back for the next episode of Mike's Amazing World of DC History.